open up to Acts uh, chapter 17. Uh, we're, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 15. Uh, so we're going to read the passage this morning. Follow along then in God's holy word. When they had passed through Amphilopolis and Ampollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom you proclaim, uh, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and, and a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of, of the rabble, they formed uh, a mob and set, them, uh, and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out, uh, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and, and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed and when they heard, when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the, uh, the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Jews were more noble than the Thessalon in, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not uh, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there to too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers uh, immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted uh, Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after, uh, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as was possible, they departed. Let's uh, just start this morning by going before the Lord and asking him to bless his word in our midst. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that you would uh, bless us today as we preach your word, as we hear from the very uh, scriptures that are without error and bear the authority of your name. Uh, we ask that you would give me the words to say. We ask that your scriptures would instruct us and teach us and meet each one of us where we are to, to minister to us. With that in mind, Lord, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our, our ears. Uh, give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see what is written in your word and, and what you have for us uh, today. We just pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I heard a, a saying that was given by the Puritans, and I, I think it's very uh, applicable. It's also a wonderful just visual imagery. They said uh, regarding the word of God, they said the same sun... That sun, S-U-N, like it's in the sky. The same sun that can harden the clay can melt the ice. Now you think it's about just that imagery. The same rays of the sun will, will shine down and, and will turn uh, muddy 
wet clay into this hard, dry, almost almost like concrete. At the same time, and, and you know this to be true, if you put a, a bucket of ice out there, you know, yesterday we had ice for all the drinks that we were passing out. That same sun will come along and the rays will shine down on it and it will just uh, melt the ice away. It will turn into water, uh, then it will turn into warm water. Uh, and, and you know that it's the same rays of heat that are, that are shining down. The Word of God works in, in much the same way. The same uh, sun that can harden the clay can melt the ice. You can see a sinner that hears the Word of God that's, that's cold to the things of God. They just warm up. You can see another person hear the same sermon or similar message of the Gospel and it just hardens their heart like clay. They, they don't want to respond. In fact, they respond negatively. This happened to me one time in a sermon that I was preaching. Uh, I was preaching from the book of Hosea, uh, from the Minor Prophets, not, not a book we go to very often maybe, but just a, a powerful picture of the grace of God as Hosea is told to go out and marry a prostitute. It's a picture of God uh, marrying the nation of Israel. He knew they were going to sin. He knew they were going to be unfaithful and go after other idols. And yet he he saved them and redeemed them and brought them into this this covenant. And so Hosea is told, go out and and marry a prostitute. She's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to cheat on you. But I want you to take her and care for her and love her. And God is telling Hosea, you're doing exactly for, for this woman what I have done for the nation of Israel. It's a picture of the, the powerful grace of God. And in preaching that sermon, uh, the, the week that followed, I had two responses. Uh, from one person, I had a, an email later in the week that came and said, Pastor, you, you talk too much about sin. That was a very hard sermon. And we need to hear how God is gracious and we need to hear how there is no condemnation for us now uh, in Christ. And so this person only heard the, the negative side of things, the sin that we have, the guilt that we have, even as I worked and paralleled it in the, in the sermon to this woman who was a prostitute. In that same, very same sermon, I had someone that came up to me personally, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but use it as an example. He came up and he said, I have never heard the gospel like that from the Old Testament. That picture of the grace of God, that, that picture of the, the deep love that God has for us, that He would take us on in our sin and, and cleanse us and clean us up, even though He knows we are going to struggle with sin and, and perhaps fall into sin at various times later on. He said, I have never heard the gospel in that way from the Old Testament. It was the exact same sermon. And, and one person said, Pastor, you didn't preach enough about grace. And another person said, Pastor, I have never heard grace like that in a sermon from the Old Testament, at least. It was the same radiating of the sun, the word of God coming down into the hearts of, of two people. And they both responded differently. We're in a passage of Scripture where basically the same thing happens. Paul is going from, from place to place preaching the Word of God. He is preaching the exact same messages. Now, now I don't mean that literally. I don't know if he reused sermon notes or not. I, I mean that in the sense that he is preaching the exact same Gospel. Telling people that Jesus is the Christ in the exact same way, in the exact same settings, in synagogues. 
Why is it that the Thessalonians turn with hardened hearts while the Bereans have their hearts opened and they want to hear the Word of God and they go back and examine it? And that is our main point this morning. God's Word both hardens and opens hearts. You can share the Gospel with someone and they will turn away and say, I I don't really need this. I don't want this. Maybe even get a little hostile with you. You know, how dare you proselytize me? You can share the exact same gospel and say it the exact same way and use the exact same Bible verses with someone. And they will come to saving faith. And I ask you, what did you do different? Absolutely nothing. You see, it doesn't reside in the power of man. It doesn't reside in your ability to communicate it. And we need to communicate it accurately and use the Word of God. But it is not your power and ability that saves people. It is not the ability of the preacher. It is not the ability of, of Pastor Bertolette up here on a Sunday that will, that will feed the hearts of the congregation. It is the working of the Word of God. And as a church, we need to be committed and dedicated to the ministry of the Word of God. And we need to pray and ask that God would open our hearts and the hearts of people that listen. That God's Spirit would go before us and soften hearts. And by the way, I'm not saying that Paul didn't somehow pray more at Berea and less at Thessalonica. I'm sure in his ministry he bathed all of it with prayer. But we are dependent upon the blowing of the wind of the Holy Spirit to open hearts. God's Word will both open hearts and harden hearts. So we have two points this morning. First, simply, people will respond harshly to the Word of God. We should not be surprised when we are faithfully ministering the Word of God if people respond harshly to it. They could respond on a whole spectrum of how this will look and still reject the Word of God. Some people will outrightly reject it. They will be angry with you. They will, they will be offended that you shared something. We could very well in the future have people that come into the church or maybe even some from within the church that, that I will share something and it, and it will be, you know, this is what the Word of God says and we'll be careful that we're accurately representing it and somebody will just say, I, I don't want that. I can't believe that. You can have, on the other side, people that will still be rejecting the Word of God, but they'll sort of reject it in that nicey-nice kind of way. That sort of, you know, if we were down south, it would be the, oh, bless your heart. That, that sort of, that's good for you, but not for me, kind of. Where, where we, we come across all sweet and open, but, but in, the, in the heart, what's really going on is, is just a hardening. That's nice for you sinners over there. Not for me. We still can reject the Word of God in our day. In Thessalonica, people Paul reasons with uh, about, the, the, uh, about Jesus in, in the synagogue. Look at verse 17, or chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
It says he, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It means that he, he engaged them in a, in a dialogue. There was, a, there was an interchange. There was interaction. Perhaps a, a little bit of debate. Uh, it, it's not so much like we hear in, in our day and age where, where people say, you know, we want to have a conversation. You know, something tragic happens in our nation. And what's, what's the first thing the politicians say? Well, I hope this raises a, a conversation. Which a lot of times just means, well, you better listen to what I want to say now, whether politically or, or whatever. But this is a, a genuine here interacting over the Word of God and, and arguing and a dialoguing from Scripture. So however it is, you know, Paul is, is taking out perhaps the, the tabernacle scroll, the, the, or the, uh, the synagogue scroll that is there and, and opening it up and, and reading a section of the Word of God and saying, you know, this, guys, this... This verse shows us that the Messiah needs to suffer. And, and, and Jesus came, and let me tell you what He did and how He fulfilled the Messianic promises. And maybe He went to Isaiah 53, or maybe He went to Psalm 22, or, or maybe He went to some other passage. He, he maybe even, uh, from what we see in the book of Acts, He might have used Psalm 2, where the Lord says, you know, I've set my king on Mount Zion. And, and Paul could say, well, let me tell you how Jesus was resurrected and he has gone up. Maybe he was like Peter and he used Psalm 18 where, where it says that um, David was buried, Peter says. And he's, this passage is fulfilled by Jesus that, that we won't let him uh, see decay. And let me tell you how Jesus' body was only in the grave for for three days, Friday, all day Sunday, and, and then he was resurrected, or excuse me, all day Saturday, and then he was resurrected on Sunday. Paul probably just was pouring out these scriptures. And perhaps people were asking questions. Well, you know, we never thought about that. Well, Paul, what about this verse? Well, Paul, you know, the scriptures say whoever hangs on a cross is cursed. How could God curse his Messiah? Well, Paul might have said, let me tell you how that works. That Jesus Christ bore the penalty for your sins. And, and on and on it goes. A reasoning through of the scriptures. He's explaining them. He's interpreting them, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 3 explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So first, it sounds, what he's doing is he's saying, let me tell you about God's promises for the Messiah. Most Jews were not expecting a suffering Messiah. They expected a Messiah who would come and who would, who would defeat the Romans and he would just have this great, wonderful earthly kingdom and, and set it all up and they wouldn't be under Caesar's authority anymore. They were looking for a king without looking for the cross. And Paul says, let me show you that the Christ, according to the Scriptures, has to suffer. That he's not victorious until after he looks like he's defeated on the cross. But that's where his victory is, Paul would have said. That's where he pays for your sins so that he can be raised up from the dead, so that he can be put on the throne like a king. Paul says then, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he's the Christ. So, so he's not just saying in a general sense, this is what the Messiah had to do. This is what had to happen to him. He's saying, Jesus is the Messiah. The promised anointed one 
from the Old Testament Scriptures. We looked at a passage this morning in, in, second, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, but then at the end of chapter 2, uh, Hannah says, makes a prayer and she prays for the Anointed One, the coming Messiah who the Lord will, will raise up. And there are many other psalms and passages in Scripture that look forward to or make promises to a coming Messiah coming from the line of David, Davidic promises that only the Messiah can fulfill. And Paul says, Jesus is this one. And these people should have known their Old Testament. It was read to them week after week on the Sabbath day. Perhaps they had Sabbath school for the little children where where the little children, just like our little kids, are coming and, and memorizing the Scriptures. It was not uncommon for the rabbis to to have the entire Old Testament memorized in Hebrew. They knew the Word of God. And it should have clicked. It should have connected. They should have said, Oh, yes, the Messiah. We see it now. But their hearts became hardened. Some were persuaded, but others, and and most of them, it looks like, were not. Look at verses 4 and 5. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So what would happen oftentimes in the synagogues in these settings is there were uh, the Jewish people, the people that were Jewish by birth, they would gather in these synagogues. But now what was also starting to happen in these times, there would be various Greek people like we see with Cornelius in Acts chapter 11, that they would gather in the synagogues. God was using the system of the synagogues to draw Greek people to hear the Word of God. There were Greek people, and and perhaps these leading women were probably uh, Gentiles. They were probably Greek or or maybe even some Roman ethnicities there. But they at least were believing that the Scriptures were the Word of God and have some sort of faith uh, in God. And so you have these Jewish people and some... It says some of them were persuaded. But the way it's phrased, it almost sounds like a large portion of the Jewish people there didn't believe. But then a great many of the Greeks who are gathering in the synagogues and sitting around the backs and and hearing the word of God and some very prominent women, women of power, women of of influence in the city. Not a few of them, it says, came to the Lord Jesus. Jesus. It's interesting if you look through Luke's Gospel and, and look through the book of Acts, which Luke also writes, he often highlights the role of women in certain situations. It's, it's a reminder that the early church saw women as equal in the receiving of salvation. Women were not second-class citizens in, in the kingdom of God. They were some of the first witnesses to the resurrection. And in that culture, women were not considered reliable witnesses in court testimony. And the fact that the Gospel highlights them as some of the first witnesses says something about the value of women in the early church. And so it is that we see women often converting in the book of Acts. Uh, One study suggests that in the early years of the church, beyond the book of Acts, a large portion of the people that came to saving faith were women because they lived in a culture that degraded them. And in church, they would have been treated as equal in receiving the ministry of the Word. They would have received benefits from the church in the sense of love and compassion and and maybe even uh, widows coming as they just need help that the culture around them is not giving. 
But the Lord Jesus Christ cherishes in saving all people, particularly those in the most needs. Look at verse 5. It says, But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set up an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated in Philippi, and that was last week and two weeks ago as we looked at that, he says, You know, we had a boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we thank God constantly for this. That, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work among you in believers. So some who fall into this category that accepted the Gospel as the Word of God were some of these Jews. Some were the Greeks. Many of them were the Greeks. Many of them were not a few of the leading women. This is what we see by the end of the book of Acts. Paul is in Jerusalem. He ministers to Jews and they, by and large, have rejected. Not all, but but mostly, overall, they have rejected. And it says in Acts 28-24, And some were convinced by what he said, but others, this is of the Jews in the synagogue, disbelieved. Acts 28-28, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you that that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will listen. It's what we see going on here. But hearts were being hardened. And hearts were being opened as they heard the Word of God. So Paul, Silas, and Jason particularly are dragged before the city authorities proclaiming Jesus as King. It says when they could not find them, they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged them and some of the brothers, so probably not Paul and Silas, but but just a mass of of the brothers uh, before the city's authorities shouting, these men who turned uh, the world upside down have also come here. And Jason received them and they are all acting out against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And when the people of the city uh, city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and they had taken when they had taken money uh, from them as a security from Jason and the rest, uh, they let them go. So part of the gospel is announcing the reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He paid the penalty for sins. He rose again from the dead and he really is a king. The Lord says to, David says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In Psalm 270, he says, God says, today you, or he says, today you are, I have, yeah, he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's this language of, of putting a king on the throne. He says in Psalm 26, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's, it's a picture of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so in part of proclaiming the gospel, they are saying, you know, look, Jesus is, is a priest. He is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is also the perfect king. And so some of these people take that message and they twist it and they, they say, oh, he's, he's preaching a rebellion against Caesar. That is not what Paul preached. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says that we should submit to governing authorities. 
First uh, Peter chapter two, verse 13 says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be emperor, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. And then he goes on and lists others. But notice he says the emperor specifically in first Peter submit to the government. The emperors typically were not nice guys, but submit to them because God has put them in charge. We're not leading a rebellion against the government. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world in John. When Pilate draws him forth and says, are you really the king of the Jews? Jesus is a king. But he's a king in a, in a different way. In other words, not in an earthly sense. Not in the sense of trying to, to, at this point in time, establish an earthly government. He's not leading us out to, to, to take our pitchforks and our swords and, and start a rebellion. But He is King. He is Lord. He is God and Savior. And what we forget is, in that culture, Caesar was proclaimed as Lord. Caesar was even used with the title of God and Savior. So there is a part where it's, you're submitting to the government, but there's also a part where you're saying these things that you hold as gods, whether it's Caesar or whether it's these idols that we'll see when Paul gets into Athens, they aren't God. Paul says in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians that turned, they had turned to serve the living God from their idols. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are coming to a King. We are turning to Him. We are believing upon Him and His name for salvation. That's our application this morning. Remember what the Gospel is. The Gospel is the, death, uh, the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus and Messiah. And part of this good news is that in His resurrected state, God has, has installed Him as a King. He is a, a high priest going up into heaven where he stands to make intercession for us. Hebrews, or, or excuse me, he sits having made intercession for us. And, and Hebrews tells us that, that we can draw near to God now. But Hebrews and Paul and the rest of the New Testament tell us also that Jesus is a king. And this is part of the good news that God reigns in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a king. And in professing faith in Him, He is King of your life. Your allegiances are, are new. You, you don't have to rebel against the government, but you are responding in a new way. Because God has opened your heart. God has opened your eyes. Scriptures say in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every, tongue, uh, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the call of the gospel. This is what we profess here and now. And in the future, everyone will proclaim that because they will see or everyone will name the name of Jesus because they'll see it to be true. But some will name the name of Jesus, profess that he is Lord as those who have rebelled their entire life. And they will be standing there, not because they want to, but because they have to. And others will be standing before the Lord because He has saved them and redeemed them and they are going to dwell in His presence eternally. And they will delight in proclaiming what is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you confront someone with the call of Jesus to believe in Him and confess that He is Savior and Lord, keep in mind that you will experience hostility and rejection. 
you will have people that will misunderstand you. You will have people that will say, well, that, that's good for you, but I don't need that. You will have people that won't want to enter this new allegiance of, of placing our trust entirely in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised if you share the gospel and someone rejects. But take heart. Take heart because God is the one who opens heart. And that's really what we see in the next section. God opening hearts. Our second point this morning is that people will respond warmly to the word of God. So Paul and Silas go to Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So here we have Paul. He's going back and he's doing the exact same thing. Paul doesn't come to Berea and say, well, you know, that message that we had, it didn't really work in the synagogues. Let's, let's see how we can spruce it up a bit. Let's try something different. He takes the exact same message and goes and does the exact same thing. The Bereans, however, are willing to examine the Word of God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to see these things, to see if these things were so, many of them believed uh, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Notice that the response is different. Instead of becoming jealous, they turn to the word of God. They say, well, let's see if what Paul says is is really true. It says here they, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, now it's tempting to, to think that this means somehow that they were better people. Perhaps they were more ready to hear the gospel. That's not what Paul means. The Scriptures tell us that no one seeks after God. No, not even one in Romans 3. It tells us that all have fallen astray. It tells us that the natural man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 will not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. That we need the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to come to an understanding. So it's not saying these people were noble in the sense that these people were better. Uh, they, were, they were just nicer people. You can't look at someone before you share the gospel with them and say, you know, this person is almost ready to receive. I'll share the gospel with them. Ooh, that person is so far away from the Lord. I, I'm not going to share the gospel from, with them because there's, there's no way that they would turn. Oftentimes, it's the exact opposite. The person that we least expect, the person that seems to, to be the most hostile to the gospel, at least initially, is oftentimes the person that God just breaks open their heart because it's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll share the gospel with someone and humanly speaking, you, you, you think to yourself, they're right there. They're so close. Maybe they're interested in spiritual things or they've, they've talked about coming to church or they're, they, they're, they pretend to be interested. And then you share the gospel and they're like, well, you know, that's, that's not really for me. I'm, I'm basically a good person. And so they're, they're going to church. They're, they're being involved in, in spiritual things is actually a sign that they're, they're more hard in their heart. They, they look like they're open but they're just using religiosity to, to put it in front and, and impress you. It can surprise you who God will open the heart of when you share the gospel because it doesn't reside in you and it doesn't reside in that person. It's the power of the working of God. And so the word here, noble, means something along the mind, lines of they were open-minded. 
Meaning, they were, they were at, okay, Paul, you said that, you quoted that passage of Scripture, let me, let me you know, open up my Torah scroll and, and see if that's what the words actually say. Okay, yeah, okay, I, I see that word there. Let me, let me compare this to this other Scripture. They're, they're, they're check-referencing Paul. The, the same thing that I hope that you're doing was when we're preaching the Word of God here. You've, you've got your Bible open. And you're, you're following along and you're saying, okay, that, that word really does say that. Okay, well, that word is the same word that's used over here or elsewhere in Scripture. And you're, you're looking to say, you know, is, is pastor just snowing me here? Or are we really saying what Scripture says? I'm not infallible. The Word of God is infallible and without error. And so we want to say what Scripture says. And that's what it means when it says they were noble or better translated open-minded. The Scriptures do say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Scriptures say in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14-15, to 15, but their minds were hardened Speaking of, of how the gospel, the word of God is read in the synagogues and how is it that people don't hear, it says their minds were hardened. And to this day, when they read the word, uh, uh, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, Paul in his ministry is using the same Old Testament that is read over and over in the synagogues. How is it that people are not hearing the Word of God and believing? The Word of God is read. It is the Word of God they're hearing. A veil lies over their hearts. And in the turning to the Lord, the Lord is taking the veil away and drawing the sinner to saving faith. Causing, as we'll say in, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, causing the light of the glory of God on the face of Christ to shine in their hearts. It's a creative act of God. Just like God said, let there be light when He created the earth. He looks at the sinner and He says, let there be light. And the veil is lifted. And there is a turning of the, the person to the Lord as they, they see Jesus Christ in His glory as it is proclaimed to them through the word of the Gospel. That is what God does. That is why the Bereans came to saving faith. They went back to the word of God and the Lord used the word of God. Let me make just a couple applications for us this morning. Two, actually. First, we cannot compromise the Word of God when it comes to ministering it in the church. We can't do it. We can't... Um, what I want you to notice from this passage is, is Paul does the exact same thing in two different places. What made the difference? It was not Paul. Paul didn't say, okay, well, that didn't work in Thessalonica. Let me try to change my method of ministry to, in a way that will attract more people. Let me, let me spruce it up a bit. Maybe if I got better illustrations. Uh, maybe if I added some puppets to the ministry. We'll go to Berea and we'll do a puppet. I, you know, puppets are fun and we do that stuff with the kids. But, but, but puppets doesn't save people. And Paul didn't, didn't say, well, let's, let's, try to, let's try to find things that are going to appeal to the human mind more. 
Let's stir them up more emotionally and then they'll come to the Word of God. Let's give them some games to play and then they'll come to the Word of God. Keep in mind as we do VBS this week, we're going to do fun games with the kids, but that doesn't save anyone. That doesn't make their heart more open to hear the gospel. Wow, we did fun things in church. Now I'll listen to the Word of God. The the child has a heart just like you and I have as sinners. And God has to open it. By the way, Pray for the kids this week. Pray for their hearts to be open. Pray that, that, that the Word of God would be clear to them. That God would, would work in children's lives. We have some of the kids that we know have made professions of faith. Pray that God would, would grow them. We're going to have some kids here from the neighborhood, Lord willing, and, and maybe even some of our own kids that, that have not made professions of faith. And maybe parents are going to bring kids and parents haven't made the profession of faith. They haven't heard who Jesus is and believed in him. Pray that God would work. Our fun snacks, our cool games are just that. Fun snacks, cool games. I like to eat, but eating doesn't save anyone. And just because we have good food after church doesn't make the word of God more effective during the sermon. God's spirit has to do it. Paul says this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have de- renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We live in a culture where churches like the idea of using cunning methods to handle the Word of God. And it leads to a tampering with the Word. We don't call them cunning methods. We call them creative methods. We call the pastor not a minister of the Word, but an entrepreneur. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the Word, Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I had a number of other illustrations that we could flesh this out, but ask that the Lord would continue to use the ministry of the Word in our church. Pray for other churches that they would hold fast to the Word of God. We are not the only church around preaching the Word of God, there are other faithful churches. But pray that we don't fall prey to the spirit of the age. Do what works, we're told. Second, this morning, as an application more on a personal level, as a believer, don't harden your heart to the Word of God. The Scriptures give this warning in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may harden 
that none of you may harden by the deceitfulness of sin. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. We need to be Bereans in our daily lives. Don't assume that you know what the Word of God says and go to the Word of God with that mindset, that you're going to instruct the Word of God, that you're going to put it through this filter of what you already know to be true. Go to the Word of God with an open heart. with a heart that says, Lord, teach me what your Word says. Open my heart so that I might see the wonderful things in your Word. The psalmist prays many of those things in Psalm 119. We need to be Bereans in our attitude. The scriptures warn even to believers, don't hear the Word of God regularly, week in, week out, and, and let yourself become dull to it. And let yourself be hardened to it. One of the ways we can do that is, is, is sit here today and think, well, I know who this sermon really applies to. I hope that so-and-so over there hears this sermon because Pastor really spoke to the sin that I know that they have in their life today. Ask yourself, what is the Lord saying to me? Because it is the Word of God. Don't harden your hearts. The Scriptures even warn in Hebrews about falling away in unbelief. That a person in the body of Christ can, can make what looks like a profession of faith but they fall away, indicating, as in the parable of the sower, that they, they never truly believed. And Scripture gives us that warning. Keep cultivating a fresh heart. Come before the Lord. Ask His Holy Spirit to open your heart. In other words, don't get cocky. I'm a Christian. I follow the Word of God. I'm a Christian. I know my Bible. But open your hearts and listen to what God has to say and respond to what God has to say. The Bible will often confront us. Paul says to Timothy in his teaching, he's supposed to correct and rebuke. That's because that's two verses earlier. That's what he says Scripture does. In 2 Corinthians 3.16, he says, All Scripture is God breathed out, excuse me, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Have you ever seen an athlete train that doesn't sweat? I submit to you if they're training and they're not sweating, they're not really training. Sometimes the Word of God turns up the heat on you. It makes you sweat a little. It convicts you of some sin. But it drives you back to Christ. That sermon that I preached from Hosea, I did talk a lot about sin. And somehow the one person that heard it never got over the hump in the sermon, the clear transition to talk about the grace of God. And for whatever reason, the person kind of wallowed in their sin. There were some spiritual things going on, I think. There were just some personality issues going on. And, and I don't hold it against the person. But when you hear the Word of God and it exposes sin, it drives us back to the cross. And that's what it means to have an open heart. That we go to the Lord and our communion with Him is refreshed. And we confess anew the things that we believe. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that through Your Word You would open our hearts. 
that you would spiritually send your spirit into our midst, that the Lord Jesus Christ's name would be proclaimed here, that Jesus is Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work and we thank you for your gospel. As we sing this last song, may it remind us of the truths of Scripture. May we lift up your name. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen. We're going to come and sing a closing song this morning.